Welcome to the Health Conscious Podcast, where we interview healthcare professionals to gain a deeper understanding of the industry. My name is Anand Chaudhari, and today on the podcast, we have Kathy Bartell, an executive in residence with the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University. Kathy's main responsibility as an executive in residence is to mentor and advise uh, the new students in the MHA program here at Cornell. And uh, so she will travel back and forth uh, between her home in Ithaca to meet with the students as often as possible to talk about resumes, cover letters, uh, any concerns that they may have about entering the industry, work, uh, workshopping interviews and things like that. And this is where she really relies on her extensive experience working as a practice administrator across many different physician groups and facilities and specialties to really provide her perspective on what it takes to be a successful healthcare administrator in the industry today. Now, because Kathy is such a great student of the of healthcare, she approached Parsa and I a couple weeks ago to talk about a strike that's happening in Connecticut. And this is between uh, employees at grocery stores and, and corporate management to try to better negotiate the terms of their healthcare coverage. And so Kathy's got a great insight in being from the Connecticut area and was really able to give us an insight into exactly what's going on here and help understand how this strike might be just a microcosm of the larger healthcare industry. So take a listen and let us know what you think. So, Kathy, I understand that you've got a uh, personal medical story in relation to some uh, strikes that are happening up in Connecticut. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking. Um, you know, the uh, employees of a huge grocery store chain um, went on strike in Connecticut. And as I was observing the striking workers in front of my stop and shop in uh, Avon, Connecticut, I kept thinking about my, my own personal uh, medical story from a couple of years ago and how much it related to the strike. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about what happened to me personally, and then and then I'll kind of weave into uh, how that relates to the strike. Sure. So a couple of years ago, um, you know, each year I try to file, follow the guidelines of any prefer, of any prescribed wellness. Uh, visit schedule, and, you know, places like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Colleges of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they all put forth that Americans should get preventive care, and there's sort of this laundry list of things you should do. So I'm good about doing that every year. It's covered under my health plan, and so I'm just very good about keeping up with my doctors. And I went to uh, my well care physical, and I expected it to be very, very routine. And I also expected it to be completely free because, as you may recall, under the uh, Accountable Care Act um, during the Obama administration, that um, piece of legislation guaranteed that wellness visits and the things covered under a well care schedule it had to be free to the consumer. So there could not be any copay or deductible or anything. It had to be free. There could be no out-of-pocket expense um, to the person receiving the well care, which is one of the benefits of having this well care schedule. It's supposed to be free. So um, I went off to the doctor, and uh, one of the things they do during a well care schedule is they 
they test your blood for all kinds of things. They can test for diabetes, they can test for cholesterol, and so forth and so on. So during this well care visit, one of the indicators on my blood test came back elevated. And I had never even paid attention to this line item on, on you know, the blood test. But my doctor said, you know, Tati, this is actually such a fluke that I'm thinking maybe it was just the machine. We're going to repeat this test. Um, nothing to worry about. You know, go get your blood tested in three weeks and we'll talk again. So I, I didn't think too much of it until I went back to speak with him. And he said, you know, Kathy, this thing is still elevated and we got to track this down. And now I can see the concern growing um, in his mind. And the concern is growing in my mind, too, because now I realize potentially something's wrong. And not only that, I also realize I have now entered the realm of sick visit because something's been detected. We have to track it down. It's no longer going to be covered on the wellness schedule. It's going to fall into, you know, the medical uh, schedule. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm in a plan with a high deductible. So um, the doctor said to me, Kathy, you have what's called the high alkaline phosphatase. I've never heard of it. Um, and he didn't talk too much about it. He just said, you need to get a nuclear bone scan so that we can figure out why your alkaline phosphatase is high. Um, and, you know, he's being all pleasant and charming and trying to calm me down. But, of course, I hop on the Internet and, and start looking looking up alkaline phosphatase the minute I get home. And um, now I'm growing concerned because my test my, this nuclear bone scan isn't for two more weeks. And it basically says that if you're in my age bracket, um, what they could be um, trying to track down if your alkaline phosphatase is high, that you could potentially have liver or bone cancer. So now I'm very worked up, and I know I'm going to be in for this long haul, and I can't wait for this test and so forth. A um, couple weeks go by, and I go in for the test. And with a nuclear bone scan, um, what happens is they inject a radioactive substance into your vein, and it's called a tracer. And they basically look for um, the tracer to be absorbed in hot spots, such as such as the bone or liver, and so forth, um, because they're trying to track down the hot spot, and that could that hot spot could be indicative of why you have high alkaline phosphatase. Now, while I was in this it takes about an hour. I was in the scanner, and um, you're not supposed to move. And this very pleasant um, nuclear uh, bone scan technician was chatting with me the whole time as this test was going on. I think that person is also designed to keep you calm. I remember chatting about kids' soccer. Uh, he had a child playing soccer, and I did. So we were t- chatting about soccer. But I will never forget, in the middle of the test, I'll never forget, he sort of leaned in towards his monitor and he sort of cocked his head to one side and, and he didn't think I heard him, but I heard him go, huh. Now, I know that he did not tell me what he may be saying or what caused him to lean in and take a close look um, and that I had to wait two more days for my doctor to tell me what the results were, but clearly uh, I am a little bit worked up about this. So finally my physician calls me two days later. I'm, I'm so anticipating that call. And he says to me, he said, Kathy, I need you to search your soul. When we talked about your alkaline phosphatase being high, I asked you the question if you had been in any accidents or had any injuries lately. 
And you said no, and he, and he said, I need, to, I need you to rethink that. I really need you to think about this time frame and, and whether you injured yourself during this time. And suddenly, suddenly, um, and in, in some way, I, I don't really know where the conversation is going, but, but I'm getting happier about it. Um, I said to him, I said, you know what? Actually, I, I did have an injury. I, I remember now. Um, I remember for a series of about six or eight weeks, um, whenever I turned, like if I was going to bed and whenever I turned in bed, my, my rib cage would really hurt and I'd kind of wince and I'd kind of grab my rib cage and I'd try to make that turn. And he said, Kathy, why didn't you tell me that earlier? <laughs> and I said, I didn't remember it. I didn't think it was important. And he said, you have a healing fracture of one of your ribs. Um, and, and I had described to him, I remember sort of getting punched in the ribs by a snowblower in a big snowstorm. I was blowing my, my driveway, and it kicked back in reverse, and it hit oh, me in no. the gut. And he said, all you have is a broken rib, a healing fracture, and that causes high alkaline constipation. I was never so relieved in my life, but guess how much it cost me to figure out that I was well. You know, considering that you're on a high deductible plan, I'm going to take a shot in the dark here and say a couple thousand dollars. You'd be exactly right, except higher. Um, after chasing all that down and getting several medical professionals involved and technicians and bone scans and hospital visits and so forth, out of pocket, it cost me $4,000 out of pocket just to find out that really I'm just rebellious against bad snowstorms. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was in entirely relieved but as I reflected on all of that and that year that I spent four thousand dollars out of pocket I was thinking about what these strikers striking workers were doing um, in Connecticut so if it's okay I'll tell you a little bit about the strike sure yeah absolutely so this strike um, involved 31,000 employees and grocery stores actually have several unions within them so it was it was several several unions participating in organizing the strike across three different states 31,000 employees and so this was a very visible strike because lots of people in New England shop at their local stop and shop store the, you know these are mega stores somewhat like Wegmans and Ithaca which we all love when we when we're in town <laughs> um, but um they decided to strike, and, and what was really interesting to me was not only were they out on the picket line and, you know, all of us locals supported them and nobody crossed the lines and, and, and the stores uh, had, had dismal operation um, during the strike. So it was very visible, but what was also very striking was that the union was putting out um, videos and podcasts, and these things were showing up on all of our local social media. So every day we were getting these videos um, from the president of the union, you know, telling us why the strike was going on, um, what they were trying to accomplish, and so forth. And their, their main message was really interesting to me. Their main message was that they wanted benefits as good as the next employer, and they wanted benefits that were fair. And it was really interesting to me that they kept using the word fair because I kept thinking about fairness in relation to what. For, for the people striking, what they wanted was a modest increase in wages. They wanted their employer to cover more of the premium for their health insurance plan. They wanted 
the same coverage they had before, and they wanted lower deductibles. All of those things come with a, a very big price. And the videos that they were putting out to the public were basically saying, you know, Stop and Shop had huge profits, and they're not sharing, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be shouldered with uh, uh, having more of our paycheck taken out to pay for the premium. We shouldn't have higher deductibles and so forth. And so I began to relate to these striking employees, given what I had gone through. You know, not a lot of people have, have saved up $4,000 to cover a deductible. It's really hard on families. Yeah. Now, I did a, sometimes I have to take complex things and put them into mathematical terms so that I can uh, understand them. And so I did a little bit of math to, to, to share with anybody who's listening. Um, and I, I, I put together sort of the following scenario. Imagine, if you will, there's a manager in Stop and Shop, and that manager makes $25 an hour doing whatever he or she does in their department. So that's a salary of about $56,000. That employee can expect to spend on their premium about $6,000 because a typical family plan in America right now costs between twelve dollars and $13,000. So... Think of it as the employer is kicking in $6,000, and the employee is being asked through deductions in their payroll to kick in $6,000 to pay for this insurance plan. Mm -hmm. Now, what's important for everyone to understand is that that only buys you an insurance card. It only buys you the coverage. It doesn't start to pay the claims. And when you add in that this person making $56,000, who's already had a reduction of $6,000 to buy the plan, they may also have a $5,000 deductible to kick in should they have an occurrence like I did. And it turned out I was completely healthy <laughs> and still paid out you know, $4,000 having gone to a wellness visit with, with, with a little uptick in, in, in a particular you know, blood level. Right. Um, so this, this is clearly very hard on, on American families, um, and, and it actually, uh, th those numbers do are, are very real, and they do tie out to what we learn in the Sloan Program and Healthcare Administration, that about 20% of the dollars that people realize in their pocket are spent on healthcare. I mean, that's over $10,000 for this person in a year, and, and that ties out to what, in, in general, uh, the public is paying. They're paying about about two of every ten dollars that exists in America is being spent on healthcare, and it's it's a really difficult problem. So we know that healthcare costs are, are rising exponentially, especially in the United States here. And there's a lot of clamoring, I think, from the patient perspective where, oh, we want lower premiums. We also want lower deductibles. And I think the friction there to me sounds like, well, you, you, you can't have both. And, and I'd love to hear your perspective on what you think are some things that, you know, can be done to reduce this cost or reduce this burden on patients uh, who already don't have that much bandwidth within their, you know, yearly salary to account for these expenses. Well, I would argue that it's, it's not a problem for an individual person. It is a problem for all of the United States of America to look at. And if you recall, I, I used that word um, that, the, that the union was um, discussing with regards to fairness. They wanted fairness in relation to the next, you know, employer down the street. But if you take the word fairness, 
and compare the United States to other countries, <laughs> that's where it really that's where things really emerge as being unfair. Right. So. Uh, by way of background, a, a little bit about this, and, and now I'm going to date myself because I'm going to put my back, myself back in the Sloan, Sloan program nearly 30 years ago. Um, but I remember studying this, and I bet you did too at, at this point in time, and, mm-hmm. and it's even more problematic for you, and I'm, I'm hoping your generation can solve this. But back, but back in the day when I was there, I remember very distinctly there was a... Um, uh, there was a dean, Dean Jerome Ziegler, and he also taught in the Sloan program. And I remember um, Professor Ziegler saying to us, um, and, and it was 1990 uh, was, was the era, and he, he was reflecting on the past U.S. healthcare and, and future, and, and he predicted a problem. And the problem he predicted is now here with urgency. So these were the statistics. In 1970, the U.S., as a percentage of gross domestic product spent on healthcare, 6%. All other countries combined, when studied, were at 4%. And so that was, that was completely acceptable for us to be two percentage points up because we like to think we're the best, so we must be spending a little bit more. And, you know, six seemed like a reasonable number in relation to four. Well, in the 1990s, when I was in the program, we were approaching 10%, and I remember Professor Siegler saying, if we get to 12, it's, it's going to be catastrophic on the U.S. economy. Well, not only did we get to 12, <laughs> now I'm basically fast-forwarding to where you are and your classmates are. Yeah. It's 18%. Oh, yeah. So, so that, and, and that ties out to what I was talking about about this manager. Two, almost two out of every $10 is spent on healthcare, and we are way out of whack with regards to the other, you know, emerging uh, uh, countries of the world. I, I think um, so. We're at eighteen percent. Um, I think Switzerland um, is at ten percent. Um, they uh, so we spend about uh, you know over eleven thousand dollars per every single American uh, we spend. Switzerland spends about eight thousand. And the United Kingdom spends about four thousand, and we may be okay with that number, except we shouldn't be, because we can't claim that we're the best in healthcare. We, we're having a measles outbreak. <laughs> we, you know, we don't cover nutrition counseling for diabetics. We have very bad infant mortality. We are not the best in healthcare. So not only are we spending way more than the other countries. We're also, we also can't claim we're the best. This is a big problem. And I think this is, what I was wondering during this entire strike was, actually, the striking employees and the owners and stop and shops should figure out that they have a common enemy and try to tackle the problem in healthcare rather than being at each other's throats over, you know, a couple dollars with, you know, how much are you going to cover in my deductible? Right. So something that I hear very frequently is that exact phrase that you said, you know, the United States is, is perceived to be the best, but the best in what, I think, is is the kind of qualifying question. And something that comes to my mind and something that I've heard and talked to my colleagues about is that you, the, the U.S. is often seen or believed to be as the best in very extreme cases, very specialized cases. And I think if there's any justification for the amount that we spend per capita, um, it's, it's to have that reputation of being the best in, in these fringe kind of medical cases. 
So how, how does a country that has that belief so ingrained of being technologically number one, um, as advanced as possible, do you have any idea or, or what do you think would be kind of the mentality shift that it's going to take to get away from that and think we need to take care of everybody at the basic level um, before really, you know, investing so many resources and taking care of the one in one million case that happens in, you know, let's just say Detroit, right? I'm just going to say that randomly. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point, and I, I guess I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, it is very interesting that places like, um, you know, Cornell, Wild Cornell in New York, and the Mayo Clinic, and the Cleveland Clinic, and so forth, um, have a lot of international travelers. But, you know, so clearly if people are coming from other countries and flying in to these centers of excellence, then yes, we must have something really great at those um, uh, rare <laughs> instances where, where people need absolute greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's been interesting to me and, 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 what, and what I think the problem is, and, and, and I'm going to relate this to all the, all the past United States presidents, presidents and the problems they have um, corralling this problem, is that in the U.S., we politically, it's very easy to focus on coverage to focus on getting the uninsured into the insured ranks. Um, no one likes to hear the word that people are uninsured. And so, uh, you know, even with uh, uh, President Obama, he was focusing on covering people and he developed, you know, he didn't personally develop them, but he, 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 he supported them. You know, the exchanges where the uninsured, the people sort of left out of the system can go and find insurance. And and again, this relates back to the fact that this only gets you an insurance card in your pocket. It right. doesn't get you it doesn't get you any care. And what nobody is focusing on, because quite honestly it would probably be political suicide to do it, is nobody's focusing on cost. So think about this. And, and, and think about how hard it would be for any president to tackle this. 80% of the dollars we spend on health care, from the last numbers I heard, 80% of that is spent in a person's last year of life. Now, no president is going to actually go forward and say, you know what, we just can't spend as much as we are on people in their last year of life. However, if you think about all the other places we need to spend dollars um, instead of the last year of life, <laughs> um, um, it, it's a real problem. So, so, so politicians and the presidents and so forth, they keep talking about coverage, but nobody really is tackling cost in the, in the totality of all of the dollars we spend. And sure, do we have these sort of magnificent centers of excellence that make us think we're great? Yes. But we're really not tackling all the problems in the entire bundle. So I'd like to drill a little bit into the cost portion here. My my co-producer Parsa is he's an international student from Canada, and um, you know when when we he came here we met him and that was the first question that everybody had in the Sloan program is oh you're from Canada, you've got universal health care it's completely covered that must be amazing what it's like. And I, I don't know if he's an outlier, but Parsa is very staunchly not a fan of the Canadian healthcare system. He talks a lot about uh, there's really long wait lines, like getting the, the, the relevant care that you need is difficult to come across in a timely manner. And it sounds, you know, we're not worrying about cost, politicians aren't worrying about cost, but 
that sort of seems to be the uh, the line in the sand, so to speak. Is that okay? Do we reduce costs and expand coverage, or um, you know, do we just let the costs go where they may, so that people can have uh, you know access if they can afford it um, at, a, at a relevant point? And so, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Boy, that's that's a tough one. So I think I might deflect that and tell you another little story going on in Connecticut. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> Because they're not getting paid, 
And this is putting a huge burden on them, and, and, and at least Connecticut State Medical Society is starting to, to you know, sit up and scream about this because they're basically saying, hey, everybody's getting what they need except us, and, and it can't even be done without us. So, so they're, they're starting to, to sit up. You know, this strike has, for me, at least as, as, as a student of healthcare, has been really fascinating because, again, I, I kind of think they're, they're arguing about and squabbling about, uh, about, you know, sort of minimal things when everybody in America should be shouting at the top of their lungs how big this problem is. So, you know, that kind of leads really well into my next question here is, you know, the, the presidential elections coming up. There's a lot of uh, people within the Democratic Party that are running and there's, you know, n number of health care reform initiatives that are being supported. Bernie's got his very popular uh, Medicare for all. You know, there's there's a question. Do we expand uh, for universal coverage? Do we not? Do we uniformly kind of, you know, make Medicaid accessible across states, things like that? Uh, how do you think that's going to shake out? What, what do you think the most natural path is, keeping in mind that the political environment is so difficult to navigate for something like healthcare? <laughs> I am going to punt on this as well. And, 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 and here is what I have been saying with all the students in the Sloan program who I have met with over the last couple of years. I have said that um, I'm relying on you guys. We, we've made a ma- My generation made a mess. 30 years of, of Sloan graduates, in my opinion, made a mess. And we are banking on you guys to get this right because it is a very complex um, um, problem. Um, the only thing that I've ever seen a series of presidents do is sort of talk about it and get the discussion going and that that sort of started with the Clintons but but nothing happened um you know President Obama as I said he he put out some really good things but it was all about coverage it wasn't about cost of care and until somebody is willing to step up and truly tell this picture and start chipping away at and all the myriad of areas where where cost is skyrocketing, whether it's pharmaceutical, long-term care, you know, whatever it is, until people really begin to understand the magnitude of the of the bigger problems and are willing to have very thoughtful discussions that um, you know result in legislation that people can get around and support we are not going to solve this problem. And we're going to go from 18% to even higher. And and remember, uh, Professor Ziegler said we were in real trouble when we got to 12. And, and, you know, we really are. We really are spending too much on health care in our country. Somebody's got to solve it. So I'm banking on you guys. How's that? <laughs> you know, if that, that sounds to me like I'm going to have a lot of work to do. And, and uh, that sounds incredibly <laughs> exciting, to be honest with you. There you go. So I've got uh, one last question for you before we kind of get towards the end here. Um, I, in, in you know, talks with my friends and things like that, the the main hurdle that they have when it comes to expanding healthcare is I don't want to pay more in taxes because I have to take care of my family, you know, myself, whatever it may be. And sort of the counter argument that I try to make there is if you pay an additional, let's say, $1,000 in taxes – that would dwarf, and you were guaranteed coverage that it, with that tax increase, that would dwarf whatever end-of-life kind of care expenses you might have, the burden that you would put on your family to take care of you. Um, but 
that message just doesn't seem to resonate, or at least it hasn't resonated in my experience. And um, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Like, what are some ways that we can effectively communicate these issues in healthcare um, in a way that's understandable and relatable to everybody? You know, um, it, it, it seems to me some other countries that are getting the same overall outcomes as us that are spending a lot less to do it have put some specific things in place. And, and when you get right down to it, I, I believe it, it comes down to science. Um, if... Um, I'm trying to think of good, a good example, but let, let, let's just go with strep throat. <laughs> sure. In, Amer- in America, if you get strep throat, you can expect that you're going to get to a doctor and they're going to prescribe an antibiotic. Now, if, if, if I read it correctly, a few years ago I was looking at this, if I, if I understood it correctly, a lot of other companies or a lot of other countries um, just sort of say, you know, the science says, um, just let it take its course, and you're going to get well anyway, even without the antibiotics. So in other countries, people don't pop, skip off to to the doctor the way we do. Um, and, you know, they sort of put out what uh, courses of action should be based on scientific guidelines. Now, some, some people with strep, you know, may get worse and may need to get into a doctor at some point in the care. But in general, from what I understand, People don't trot off to the doctor the way we do. Now, in in the U.S., I, I would actually argue that we're quite demanding, and and and, and I can tie this out in my physician uh, practices too. There are a lot of people who are going to shop until they get what they want. So if one top, and this this is part part of the uh, the opioid crisis, there are a lot of doctors who say no to prescribing those, but you can go all the way down the street and find the doctor that does and you will get what you want and that's going to contribute to the cost of health care. So, you know, maybe as Americans we have to start talking about how demanding we are and and our demands are not usually founded, you know, founded and grounded in scientific fact. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, infusing science <laughs> more into political discussions and, uh, when it comes to healthcare, you know, what's more science-based than, than you know, the, the study and the improvement of health and, and, and body and things like that? So I, I, my answer is I'd go with science, but I'm not sure that's a, a politically correct answer. <laughs> Well, if if it's any consolation, Kathy, I think it's the right answer, and it's it's, it's something that I try to to, to, to live on and, and live by. I yeah. you know, if any of our listeners here want to follow up more on this strike in Connecticut, uh, you know, as somebody who's very familiar with this issue, what do you think would be the most effective way to get this information? Yeah, absolutely. People can uh, people can email me. I don't mind putting that out. Um, it's Kathy Bartell at iClients.com. And by the way. Strike, and this is a good conclusion. The strike lasted 11 days. It went all the way through Easter. So everybody in three states had to divert to another grocery store. And they all had paydays because uh, we had to wait in line for 30 minutes with our Easter groceries and so forth. But <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the employees did come back um, to the table. They are all back to work. They've restocked the shelves. Um, but again, all they really gained was like a couple of dollars here and 
here or there. It, it absolutely did not solve the major problem that they or their employer are facing. So we've got a lot to do. And like I said, I'm, I'm putting it into the next generation. Well, Kathy, that's a great segue into this last question here that we like to la- we like to ask all of our interviewees. Um, I know you do a little bit of this in your role as an executive in residence with the Sloan students, but for anyone that's listening from any MHA program, you know, a lot of these um, students are getting ready to enter the, the industry for the first time or maybe re-enter it by pivoting. And I was wondering if you might be able to share one piece of advice that you think anybody listening could, could use, especially a young professional uh, entering the workforce today. My absolute best days in healthcare came when I had to make a, a very important decision and sort of buck the system or buck the trend or buck the way the way to do something and and do it in a way that was um, fair and conscientious and, I, and I'll just give I'll just give one example of this. Um, at one point in my career, um, my group um, was. Uh, in really good financial shape, but it was also ripe to be bought, and a national organization targeted it. And my physicians came to me, and, and they said, you know, Kathy, we can't do our due diligence and consider the sale of our practice to this national group uh, without you, so we really need your help. Um, but, oh, by the way, while we're doing this, we don't want you to tell the rest of the employees because we don't want them to know this is going on until it happens, because if it doesn't happen, if the sale doesn't go through, we, we don't want them to know it ever even existed. And um, I was absolutely uncomfortable with that approach uh, for one primary reason. A lot of the people who worked with me, particularly on the administrative end and in the business offices and so forth of, of the practice, um, many of them were uh, young, single, single moms, and I knew that um, if we sold out to a national organization, some of the local jobs might be lost to uh, some of the centralized functions. Um, and I wasn't willing to go through what was going to be six months of, of protracted information sharing pertaining to the buy without these employees being informed. I, I simply wasn't willing to do it. So. I said to my doctors, and they were—they were very reasonable people. I had worked for them for eight years, and I said, "Look, I, I'll help you with this sale, but but I will only do it if I'm allowed to the, tell the employees, uh, you know, the possibility of what's going to happen." And it turned out that that decision was absolutely the proudest of my career, because in the end. Every single employee stayed with me until lights out. And on the day that we closed um, and turned over that company to, to the buyer, uh, me included, I lost my job. It, it, it's a very interesting experiencing, experience helping yourself out of a job. But in the end, in the end, when we knew the sale was coming and so forth, every single employee, there, there were 11 of us that needed to get placed. Um, ten of us were placed. We all got bonuses. We all took a bit of a holiday before starting our new job. And, and that 11th person we had placed was an executive placement firm. And we all stayed until lights out because we wanted to hand over what we had been doing together for eight years um, to the best of our ability. And 
and that was a tough call. My doctors didn't like it, but but then they started buying into it, and everybody left peacefully. And uh, I, I absolutely have no regrets. Um, what was potentially the hardest part of my whole career, losing my job, turned out to be my absolute best day. Wow! Wow! That was fantastic. Well. Kathy, I have to thank you really for for jumping on the podcast with us today and kind of talking about these issues. Um, Really, really appreciate you taking time on your busy day for us. I'm going to conclude with two things, which is I heard it's still snowing, (laughs) even though it's going to be May. So I want you to rebel against the snow. And I will see you at Wagner Dinner for the the, uh, uh, ceremony and commencement of our class of 2019. That was Kathy Bartell, the executive in residence at the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University. And I, again, want to thank Kathy for jumping on the podcast with us today. This was really a lot of fun, and and I love that Kathy was able to take the story about the strike, her own medical experience, and really cast a larger light on the healthcare industry today in, in the United States and kind of some of the challenges that it faces. And I think that's the challenge that faces all of us as healthcare administrators getting ready to roll out into the industry is how do we take this very complex problem, break it into manageable portions, and also work at it in a way that's effective for everybody. You know, the United States spends more on healthcare per capita than just about any other uh, developed country in the world with very middle-of-the-road healthcare outcomes. And the question for me is, how do we fix that? How do we provide high-level care, preventative care, uh, that everybody needs in a way that maximizes the cost-effectiveness of this? And I thought Kathy, Kathy brought up some really, really great points um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this kind of rolls out as, as the next generation of healthcare leaders and healthcare administrators enter the industry. So thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.